Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And today we're looking at different ways to structure scenarios. Before we get into all that good stuff, what is going on? Scott, you've been uh, running some more games for How We Roll, is this correct? I think I mentioned that we were recording this one a while back, but now that it started coming out, I thought I'd plug it again. So I've been running the Flotsam and Jetsam campaign for an all-star cast on How We Roll. So it's Joe and Owen from How We Roll, we've got Veronica from St. Paxton's, and we've got Seth Skolkowski. This is the organised play campaign that Chaosium put out a little while back, which you can get as part of the Cult of Chaos. And we've finished now recording the first chapter, which is The Star Brothers by Brian Cortemanche, which is, I think, now one of my favourite Call of Cthulhu scenarios. Having run it a few times, there's something about this scenario that feels very different from most Call of Cthulhu scenarios. And it's not a structural thing, I don't think, so unfortunately I can't necessarily use it as an exemplar in this episode. But I think it's just got a very different emotional tone. It plays up more the weirdness of Call of Cthulhu than the horror. I mean, there are a few horrific bits in it, but I think on the whole it's just a very weird human scenario, and I love it. Oh, cool. I'll have to uh, give that one a read. I've not read that one. And speaking of doing stuff elsewhere, Paul, I hear you've done some bits over on Storytelling Collective? Yeah, um, the storytellingcollective.com on the website, they run a course called Write Your First Adventure. They've run it at least once before, maybe a couple of times. And it's a course, you know, it does what it says on the tin, basically. You can sign up for the course and it gives you a whole bunch of lessons. There's 20 odd lessons, and it takes you through from your initial idea all the way through to publishing your scenario on DriveThruRPG. So this year, Chaosium have sponsored a track on it for specifically Call of Cthulhu publications. So with the aim being that you, once you've created your adventure, you can publish it on the Miskatonic repository. There is also a track for the uh, now what's it called the dms guild for DD, and i think there's a generic track as well i've written the middle section so the middle section there's like a breakout section of the course which covers the specifics of call of cthulhu so i wrote about eight lessons that slot into that uh, and each lesson has a, a worksheet and exercises with it so Hopefully, I've kind of tried to put everything, all the advice I could think of on, on writing scenarios in there, and Chaosium have added some other material as well. So uh, I hope people find it useful. Well, as most most people listening to the show probably know by now, I, I frequent this little site called Kickstarter occasionally, and I maybe throw them a few dollars here and there. Uh, yeah, there's another project that's launched fairly recently and runs through until Saturday the 24th of July. The Cthulhu Classics Kickstarter, where they're reprinting the second Ed box set in its various forms. You can either go for the two-inch box set, the one-inch box set. Um, I would say the two-inch box set as well that you could get signed, but all of those at the time of recording have been snagged. But yeah, they've been doing pretty well with that so far. Uh, at the time of recording, they're just about to cross over the $200,000 mark. And so as well as the box set of Call of Cthulhu itself, what else is involved with the Kickstarter, Matt? Well, there's a couple of stretch goals that they've got through so far. So there's a GM screen that's been updated, although 
it has the resistance table on it. <laughs> uh, some updated artwork on there. So a new, a new logo for the 40th anniversary. And also a set of ruby-coloured dice because it's a 40th anniversary. They've snuck a D12 in there as well. So in addition to the core rules that you'd find in the original Second Ed uh, box set, so you've got like, the core rule book, the source book from the 1920s, the various maps that go with it as well. They're also reprinting, for those who go for the two-inch box, a few of the older source books and campaigns. So you've got the first and second Cthulhu Companion, so as the original one, the Cthulhu Companion, and then Fragments of Fear, um, alongside Shadows of Yogg-Sothoth, Trail of Sothogwa, and The Asylum and Other Tales. So yeah, a load of stuff that's been out of print for quite a long time. Very nifty. Yeah, they're, they're tidying up some of the layout, and as Rick described it, uh, getting rid of a few embarrassing typos. <laughs> On the whole, it seems to be that it's keeping faithful to the original files. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting that one. But they're, they're going to be shipping very promptly after the Kickstarter finishes. They're pretty much raising the funds, sending it straight to print thereafter, after people get their orders in in backer kit. I know I'll be putting in a few additional bits in the backer kit afterwards. Surprise. Yeah, and then it should be out to people and hopefully reach us by the anniversary itself, so by Halloween time. And now on to our main topic, scenario structures. So whether you're putting together a scenario for yourself or if you're planning on sharing it with other people, maybe publishing it, you generally need to find some way of structuring it, of presenting the information this may not be something that you're even aware of doing at the time, but it's a fairly essential part of putting together a scenario, and how you choose to do it can have not only a huge influence on how someone coming to the scenario as a keeper or GM sees it, but also on how the players approach it, because the structure is going to very much dictate how the player characters interface with it as well. So in this episode, we're going to break down a number of different approaches we've either used ourselves or seen other people use, and talk about what we think are the strengths and weaknesses of each. What do we mean by scenario structure? Because to me, it means two different things. It means, first off, how to present the information on the page when I'm writing a scenario. I guess this is more for somebody who's writing a scenario for publication, really, if you're just writing it for yourself, probably the structure in which you write it down is probably of less importance if you're just writing for your own notes. But if you're writing it for someone else to use, you want to use a structure which communicates the adventure, the scenario, as clearly and as effectively as possible. I don't think that's what we're talking about today, though. Am I right? Well, I think that and the other aspect, which I think we'll have to define in a moment are very closely linked because well i don't know we'll, we'll get into this i think as we go along but personally i find that the way that i structure my thoughts has got a fairly big influence on the scenario when we get into the individual types of, of structure i think that'll become clearer but even if this is something that i'm just writing for myself to run no, they, the structure has a, a huge influence. Yeah, I was just trying to think of how I've approached my own scenarios before and how I've approached trying to put them down on paper. There's that obvious thing as what, what you mentioned, Paul, that it's how you write it and put it down on paper for other people to use. And I think I almost keep coming back to words, just want to use the same word, structure, again, as its, as its own thing, but it's a bit of a recur mm. recursive description, that it's very much how 
related information is presented is probably the closest I can get to to my description of it. That if you're presenting various aspects of the scenario, you could easily categorize them as X, X, Y, and Z, let's say location, NPC, event. Um, Do you perhaps tie all the locations together in one section? Do you then perhaps do all the NPCs in another selection? Or do you perhaps do events that happen at particular locations so you detail the location and then the event next to it? It's a weird juggling act that I think really becomes very context-dependent on the type of story you're writing and also from playtesting it through, how you see players interact with it. And then your experience as a GM, then going through your own notes and thinking, well, what could work better if I was having to flick between, say, going to, let's say, the map of a house, saying, well, the stuff that's happening in the dining room is on this page, Mm -hmm. but the description of the dining room is on this other page because I've got all the descriptions in one place. It's making it the most user-friendly and most accessible and efficiently working document that you can. Yeah, so Chaosium have this sort of format now of having the dramatis personae up front, so all the characters' descriptions are there, but then their stats are at the end, in the sort of appendix at the end, yeah. all the stats are blocked together. And that's generally the case for, for how that's presented, and I think that works very well. That, you know, that works well for me. But, I mean, obviously the other approach is to have the characters detailed as you encounter them in the scenario. That's a totally different way of structuring it. Both have their issues, but I think the one they use works very well. Well, how, that comes also into like issues of house style that you'll find that certain publishers tend to fit to a particular style. You'll find that Morkborg Adventures, for example, are laid out very much in a similar way in terms of just how it's laid out on the page, not necessarily how, the, how it's, going back to that word we're probably going to use so many times, structure of how it's laid out. You've got Chaosium, as you say, has its own house style. Pelgrain has its own particular style that this section, then this section, then this section, X, Y, and Z follows the same order each time. And also, I think we'll probably get into a few you know, examples of very specific styles of structure, but I think it's probably important to point out at this stage that a lot of scenarios are actually hybrids of all these things. No one approach is necessarily going to be exclusive when when you write a scenario or when you put something together but at the same time one of them will probably dominate and i think separate to that uh, there's uh, there are links but separate to that how you structure the scenario on the page and present the information as we just discussed there's the whole concept of how is the scenario structured when the players play it is it just a, a linear scenario is it very sandboxy there are all these different sort of structures that the story can take. And I think those are the things that we're going to dig into. Now let's have a look at the types of scenario structure. Well, let's start off, I think, with what is probably the simplest one and one that we may all well have written at some stage, which is... I'd say the neutral way of putting it is a linear series of events. The more pejorative or negative way of discussing it would be a railroad. I think it's a bit more complicated than that because there are other ways of railroading players than just writing a scenario that's a linear series of events. So, you know, let's try not to conflate those terms too much. But this is something that I I see as being not necessarily a bad decision but it's a very particular design decision that you make for particular types of scenarios so let's say for example you have a group of 
player characters who are starting off in one location and want to travel to another location. You're thinking in terms of, let's put a few encounters they can have or a few interesting things that can happen on the way you know perhaps looking at the map of the game world or the real world map or whatever it is that they are likely to take this particular route maybe they are taking a train or a boat or something like that maybe they're walking across country but whatever it is there is a fairly straightforward path that they're taking and you're just trying to make that more interesting so that really is generally just thinking right okay so they reach this point and here's something that can happen here they reach this point here's something that can happen here they reach this point here's something that can happen that they can interact with and that is just straight linear writing yeah and you can have you know like you said scott it can be a journey it can be Mm. a very linear investigation where clue a takes you to scene b I don't know, I'm mixing up my terms here. The clues lead you from, you know, there's one clue at each location and that clue just takes you to the next, in inverted commas, location. It might be a person, it might be a whatever, but it takes you to the next scene. So it's a a string of scenes and it's quite predefined, the order in which you're going to do those. And one of the, the great Cthulhu campaigns does exactly this, you know, Orient Express, Horror on the Orient Express. You're going to do those places in the order that the train gets to them. Although making it sound a little bit more nuanced than that, at least, yeah, you, you might go from city one to city two to city three, but when you get to each city, I would hardly say that the the plot and the events there are uh, linear at all. It's almost like you're you're going on a linear set of sandboxes mm. that you get from one location, and then there's a whole. It basically opens up a whole new environment to for you to explore and make your way through the plots that are happening in those locations in your own way. It's just that it happens that you will always, say, have London and then the next one will be Paris because that's just the line, the train line goes between A to B and then on to C, etc. And I think with published campaigns, a lot of them are exactly as you say, they're perhaps fairly linear series of events, or sometimes there's a bit of a choice in how you approach them, like with Masks of Nialathotep, where you might approach things in a different order. But fundamentally, it is you are going to location A, you're going to location B, you're going to location C, and stuff happens. It's just that in masks, you might go from A to C and then back to B. At least also with those that you would normally play through all the events at one location before moving on to the next. You wouldn't necessarily bounce back and forth. You wouldn't, say, end up in the first city, then go off to your second one and then go, oh, hang on a minute, we need to go back to the first one again, and so on. So you you do each one very discreetly. I mean, this is one of the things with having a campaign book, isn't it? The information in the book, you want the players to be able to enjoy playing through that content. So if you have a bunch of stuff in there, they're just going to circumvent you know, by by leapfrogging over it or not going down those avenues. That's a bit weird as well, because people are going to say, well, I bought this book. We only played about a quarter of it. What? Why was all that other material in there? We, we didn't get to that. They, they took a different route. I think if you've got the campaign, you want to be able to play through it all. But as you say, like Marston Lathtep is a good example of one whereby, you know, certainly different people definitely take very different roots through that and the same with our two-headed serpent that we wrote the pulp campaign i think most of these uh, linear scenarios start off with an opening scene right they start off with a, a set scene and then after that well if, if we're sticking with the linear ones you know it's a b c d e we'll get on to other sorts in a minute but what does the term you, you mentioned this term railroad 
What do we mean by a railroad? There is one true way and no other. Well, I think it's more than that. I think fundamentally it's about negating player choice. It's not just about limiting it, but it's sort of, these are the things that are going to happen in this scenario, and it doesn't matter what the players do. They're just going to experience them. So that's a railroad at its worst. I think a lot of pre-written scenarios, and particularly campaigns, do have elements of railroading in there. Not in terms of limiting player choice, but just in terms of making sure that certain scenes happen for exactly the reason you said, Paul, that you want to experience these things. And I think this is even more important in games like Pulp Cthulhu than perhaps Call of Cthulhu, and you know, to some extent maybe in games like D&D, where you've got action scenes, where you've got set pieces, where you want to make sure that they, they find their way to the big sunken temple so they can fight the Atlantean high priest there. If there isn't anything guiding the player characters to the sunken Atlantean temple, or if they can bypass that completely and this was your big set piece for the the scenario, then if it's a published scenario, that risks, I think, it being anticlimactic or a bit of a damp squib. So it's it's a really difficult balancing act to hit sometimes. Mm. There's certainly a lot to be said for having this linear approach that it's for particularly for new keepers or new GMs, that it makes it very easy for them to run. So it then gets them used to a structure that then they can start experimenting with once they're confident with how how it works. But yeah, that moment when it descends into a railroad and you lose that player agency where it's you're sat back thinking, well, why do I need to be here? That I can't influence anything that's going on, so I might as well just sit back and watch the pretty lights. That Then that becomes an immediate mood killer and basically enthusiasm killer for me. Yeah, if you're just effectively rolling dice for sound effects, then yeah, it's, it's no fun. Because hmm. I was thinking about this term railroad and I came to the conclusion there's like two different things here really there's railroad as a noun meaning like a linear scenario like scene a then scene b then scene c hmm. and i think that's perfectly fine i don't think there's any problem with that but i think it gets mixed up with railroading as a verb and railroading as a verb yeah that is bad that's when the gm is blocking player actions yeah so you can have in the way that it might say in the text that this NPC, whatever you do, they're going to get away. It doesn't matter what the PCs do, they get away. You know, if Matt then pulls out his gun and rolls a crit, I as GM have to sort of say, well, yeah, you do hit him, but uh, yeah, he survives. <laughs> and it's like, well, and then Matt knows that he did like 20 damage or whatever, and it should have killed the guy. So there are various ways, and we've all experienced this, of, of GMs feeling constrained in some way or constraining us in some way and not letting us do things which it feels like we should be able to do. Yeah. And yeah, you can forgive that once or twice, but when it repeatedly happens, it just becomes, like you say, you, you know, you just disengage with it. It just feels like, well, why am I here? Why am I rolling these dice? Is that all I'm here for? But I think that the linear scenario... So if you've got a scenario where you're going from, you know, through a string of scenes, if you've got complete freedom to do what you want within those scenes, even if the scene is, I don't know, it's at the, uh, it's, it's in the town and you go into the library, the scene is at the library and everything, and you say, well, actually, you know, I think we should uh, go off to the university and, and see this old professor I used to know, and you just sort of make that up on the fly as a player, the GM can go with that and improvise around it. 
it's presented as a series of scenes but if the gm gives you the freedom you can you know branch out of that a bit no sorry the professor's dead and the university is closed now <laughs> matt was there it's burnt down there were books in it the other thing that I think might dictate whether or not you use a very linear format in a scenario is if you've got a series of events that take place. So, I mean, we talked about the sort of geographical aspect of going from point A to point B. But if if you've got something that's constrained, if you've got a scenario that's all taking place in a single location, or a series of locations, but it's all dependent on say the antagonists do this then the antagonists do this then the antagonists do this or natural phenomena happening or as something external that's happening at, at certain stages then that is also a kind of linear design i've played and and i guess even written a few scenarios like that i think it can work quite well as long as again you know as as you were saying paul as long as the player characters have got a means of influencing it so I was contacted recently by a Japanese player who's uh, been playing some of my scenarios. They said that they were different to the scenarios they were used to playing. Now, I've been intrigued by Japanese scenarios for a little while because Call of Cthulhu is, is massively popular in Japan, but there's not a lot of translated material. So I'm intrigued to know how the Japanese players if there is a, you know, if there if one can generalize approach playing the game. So I said to them, well, what, how, how are they different to the scenarios you're used to? Um, and they said that a lot of Japanese Call of Cthulhu games were more, or were more, I think they used the phrase more emotional. Apologies to them. I'm not sure if they, if how good their English was and if they were using, because I'm, I'm, I'm having to rely on Google Translate sometimes to translate Japanese, which is far from perfect. But I, I, I kind of, pushed a little bit on this to try and get my head around what what was meant and one of the things they said was that that i could understand was that they were more linear and that there was a very much a, a tendency to be you know clue taking to the next scene clue taking to the next scene and just like we've just been talking about a very much uh, more linear scenarios and they enjoyed mine because they um, were less like that and were more gave them more options i think so whether that's representative of Japanese scenarios, I don't really know. But that was that was their um, that was the case they put forward, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'd really love to see some Japanese scenarios translated into English, just because I've I've seen a few translated replays, and it does look like a very different style of play than certainly what I'm used to. Mm. Now, the next one we have on our list, you've written Dungeon, Scott. So what did you have in mind there? You have, I mean, like the classic dungeon, really. Yeah, well, I was using that as a general term for anything that is constrained by geography, where basically you have a map, and the map has got locations, and there are specific ways of getting between them. So yes, I mean, obviously, the classic example is the D&D dungeon. But I was going to also put together an argument that something like, let's say, The Haunting is almost a dungeon. Again, go back to this, you know, what we said at the beginning about you know, hybrid scenarios. The first half of it, where you're doing the investigation and so on, isn't but when you get to the house it is very much you're going from location to location you know here are things that can happen in each room here's what you're building towards and it is sort of a dungeon i was actually thinking a similar kind of thing with uh, one of the 
published scenarios I've run fairly recently. I had the uh, the great pleasure of playing it uh, a few months ago uh, with the uh, the Into the Darkness crew. It was uh, good friend Holly Buto that ran it. Uh, Uncle Timothy's Will from Blood Brothers. Oh, yeah. And yeah, you, you could effectively classify that scenario as a dungeon, that you have a description of rooms in this house. There are certain things to find in each room. There are certain obstacles you have to overcome to find it or certain roles to uh, to do in each room. Then there's a bit wider of an estate. You've got the grounds where there's various things happening there. So you can go out and explore a bit. So it doesn't feel quite so constrained because you can go outside and you can visit other parts on the estate. Like there's a cemetery at the back of the house. There's woods that surround the place, etc. So it does a good job of veiling it. But essentially, it is that. It's that you have a list of locations and stuff that can happen to it, and then various encounters that happen as the time progresses as well, and they aren't necessarily location-dependent. But yeah, I can very much see that being appropriate to things like The Haunting as well as, as well as Uncle Timothy's Will. What about Amidst the Ancient Trees, your scenario in the Keeper rulebook, Matt? I mean, that is you're travelling through woods, not a dungeon, but would that how would that compare? It's kind of somewhere between, in my mind, somewhere between a linear series of events and a dungeon in that it's almost like a dungeon without walls. It's locations that maybe are tree-lined, maybe clearings in, in woods, etc., where particular things happen. But also with that, there's a little bit more variety of you don't necessarily have to go from A to B to C. There's certain points where you can think, well, do I take the path that goes left or do I take the path that goes right? And then that will determine which lo- which location you end up to next. Maybe a bit like the uh, the corridors in a dungeon leading to uh, leading to different rooms. Hmm. It's something that you can play around with how it's visually presented and about what the, what kind of style it takes. But fundamentally, it's very much it's the same kind of skeleton behind it. Yeah, because I think if you compare, if you can make a flowchart of, say, uh, amidst the ancient trees, if you turn it into a flowchart, perhaps it ends up looking a bit like a dungeon. Then. Hmm. You know, your boxes with arrows become your rooms with corridors. I was trying to pin down in my mind earlier what the difference between that and a sandbox would be then. Because a lot of sandboxes do have lots of individual locations. And I say one big difference is that in a dungeon, you tend to be building towards a prescribed climax or a single climax. Generally, there is one particular location or one particular event that you're heading towards that will provide the climax of the scenario. But with the sandbox, it's, I guess, more open that you know, it, can, it can resolve in all sorts of different ways depending on what the the player characters do and there's there's definitely no order to which they approach things certain events will be laid out in the book but they don't know all the the structure of the document but they don't necessarily have to happen in that order in play not all of them may happen uh, the pcs have complete choice over what route they take through the environment and the com- the culmination of that journey could as you say depend on uh, give them one of many different possible outcomes mm-hmm. and that that's one of my favorite things to run as a gm because it's always different each time depending on what group you've got and that makes it more fun what that scenario you mean or that style that particular style yeah. that you you don't know uh, what route a pc is going to take you don't know what they uh, what actions they're going to do in response to certain things because it's not the kind of one one only option that they have in this particular area leads then to the, the next thing it very much keeps the gm on their toes means they have potentially have to improvise but also then how they react to what the pcs do i, th- I think that just is a lot more pleasant an experience for as for me as a gm 
I don't really have a better term for it, but I'm not really happy with calling them dungeons. When I think of D&D, a dungeon, you know, you can't circumvent rooms. Whereas like in the example you gave of the Haunted House, uh, the classic scenario of Call of Cthulhu, you could go down to the cellar before you go up to the, the upstairs room. It is kind of open where you go. Whereas a dungeon is very structured, or it can be, certainly. It presents you with a definite structure. You know, on the classic dungeon bash, you know they're going to go in on level one. They've got to go through a series of rooms. There may be several ways down to the next layer, uh, to the next level. There might be some stairs that take you down through level two to level three or something. But that is almost like a board game structure, I think, the, the classic dungeon. Um, but And I can see that there are parallels to you know, to what we're talking about here, yeah. I'd say that they're very closely related, that the similarity is the fact that it is broken down as a series of locations that you travel between that are linked and constrained by geography. The difference between, say, something like a classic D&D dungeon and the house and the haunting is just the degree of constraint, but it is just a matter of degree. I'd say that the appeal of writing something like this and running it is, again, going back to what you were saying about the series of linear events, is particularly if you're an inexperienced GM or you know, a less confident GM when it comes to improvising, that it is a very safe, contained structure, that it is, it's easy to write, it's easy to run. Are you saying the linear one is easy to run or the dungeon one or both? Well, I'm saying like, like the linear one, the dungeons are easy to write and easy to run. The linear one, it seems simpler. Good ones will run well and beginner, novice keepers, GMs can run them, you know, relatively with, with ease. But if they're not good ones, I think they present their own problems for the GM because they know they've got to get mm. the players from scene A to scene B. And if the players are intent on going somewhere else, that's quite a problem for the for the beginning keeper. I think yeah. one w which allows you a bit more flexibility, sometimes even for a, like a beginning keeper, is perhaps a bit easier. So it really depends on... Perhaps it just comes back to how well the scenario is written and presented, you know, in that in that respect. You know, one thing I'd love to do with a classic dungeon crawl that I, I doubt I'm going to get the opportunity because I very rarely play such games is to play a group that go into a dungeon, you know, go down the first long corridor and then decide, right, we're going to block up the, uh, the way ahead so any monster can't get towards us. We'll bring in a mining party and basically just drill straight the fuck down and then out to the sides <laughs> to basically see what's out there and cut to different further parts of the dungeon without having to get in a fight. Yeah. We'll pipe poison gas down and then we'll pipe an antidote down. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just loving the idea that you, you find some clever way of bypassing all the earlier stuff and going straight to the dungeon boss and realise that you've missed like five opportunities to level up and you just get slaughtered as soon as you get there. Yeah, that is the drawback. You miss out on all those magic items and stuff. But then if you leave some notes or some kind of journal to your brother or uh, wife or friend that can then be found by the next party that go in and get the heads up as to what they need to do... <laughs> And just hope that the monsters haven't healed in the time being. <laughs> and our next one on our list, a geographical sandbox or open world game. 
this is again geographical to some extent but this is the classic you have a hex map or you have a map of a location here are all the individual things in that area the player characters have got complete freedom of movement about how they go around and interact with them and they effectively build their own story by doing so fundamentally I know this is going to be heresy. I don't think it's necessarily hugely different from a dungeon because, as I said, there's no geographical constraint no. that says, all right, you do this, that, and the other. But in terms of how you approach it as a writer or how you approach it as a GM creating it, that you are still very much thinking of it in terms of here's a series of locations. It's just how you're linking them together that's different. It's almost like having the, going back to the dungeon, um, you find yourself in your first chamber, you've got one door out. Whereas in this case, you go in the room, in this case the room happens to be, let's say, a field out in the middle of nowhere, and you've got umpteen many different corridors that you can take it's just again perception mm -hmm. it's ultimately there is going to be a route that leads you from location a or event a to something else that happens next but you've just got a whole multitude more options to choose from and it may not have even appeared that it's actually a defined choice yeah i don't think that's a heretical view at all scott i think that's i would agree it's um it's just a dungeon outside the dungeon and to some extent you are imposing a structure on us anyway perhaps because players are always to some extent going to be dependent on the gm for cues about what is important in the game and where they might be going next and all right you can put down a map in front of the player characters and if it's a classic hex crawl yes i suppose you can go just go from hex to hex but if you look at that map and it sort of says here's the well of sorrows and here's the mountain of skulls and stuff like that on the map of course you're going to go to those fucking locations i mean who wouldn't you're not just going to wander around the blank area of the map over and over again and, and you know, hope for interesting random encounters you're, you're going to go for the things with cool names it's one, one of the things I found while playing a paranoia scenario on Roll20 a few months back. One of the features on there is that it was, it was a hex map. You found yourselves in this little copse of trees, but it was night, so you couldn't see very far, so you could only see so many hexes ahead. And that felt quite daunting in a way. It was, right, okay, we have no idea what's out there, but if we move a few hexes in this direction, oh, it illuminates a bit more of the map. And then, oh, well, hang on a minute, we, d we, d we just didn't have those frame of references until we went out and explored, mm. but it was that freedom to explore in any direction rather than having the, okay, we're going to roll out the map on the table and you see everything in one go that then gives you that choice of, oh, we go here, there, everywhere. Because when, yeah. when I saw the map finally, I think, oh, crap, why didn't I go to that great big volcano thing that was off to the north? That looked <laughs> interesting. I, instead, I just ended up wandering <laughs> around and getting killed by fucking squirrel. What the hell? So this is not a structure I think we tend to see very much in Call of Cthulhu. I would have said. I've had a number of people tell me that they think Blackwater Creek is a sandbox. And I think, yeah, I mean, to, to some extent, I guess it probably is. But in terms of there's no particular expectation once you get past the opening scenes as to what order you'll encounter things in. But at the same time, I don't think it's as wide open as a lot of people think, because I did very much have in mind, here are a few major set events some of which may prove climactic well i think the difference comes here is when you're talking about a geographical sandbox the way we described it then with the the classic sort of hex crawl type thing is those tend to be 
or can be kind of discrete things happening on different hexes. There may be some interrelationships, but there isn't necessarily an overarching plot or story kind of going on that ties all those elements together. Whereas with yeah. a Call of Cthulhu scenario, I think there always is, as with Blackwater Creek, there's a there's a thing to investigate, yeah. but you can, I mean, I, I would say it is of a um, more taking the sort of sandbox model for Call of Cthulhu in that you, there's a couple of different ways you can start off, but essentially, you know, you start off by going uh, to Blackwater Creek and then once you get there, it's it's fairly open where you go. You know, you you can you can go and talk to various people. You can mm. go to various locations, and even then, once you start to get into the investigation, you know that can lead you down several avenues. But there are a set of I don't know, maybe probably a dozen to twenty yeah. people and places that you might want to talk to and visit. So there's a there's a network of those. Mm. It's not like if, if you go a certain distance, you're off the map and there's nothing else. Whereas I think with a sandbox location, yeah. geographical sandbox in the strictest sense, you could just carry on traveling north forever and just keep meeting new stuff, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think that's perhaps what sets an investigative game apart from a purely adventuring one. Whereas an investigative game, there is a store, the, the GM has got a has got content for you to investigate whereas with a purely adventuring game you might just be going off and adventuring and the gm is just making up new stuff it doesn't have to have a plot as if if that's the right word for you to investigate but i think you know with call of cthulhu it has to be you you are kind of investigating something or there has to be something there to engage with if you like we did a couple of episodes a long time ago on investigation in call of cthulhu and mm. I, th I think i made a fairly passionate case for why I don't think Call of Cthulhu is always investigative then and how a lot of my favourite games aren't. But I agree that it is the sort of default mode of playing Call of Cthulhu. I was listening to the Frankenstein's RPG podcast recently, which I've been enjoying. I'll just say, give them a plug. And um, one of the guests on there, they were talking about investigative different games that deal with investigative skills and so on. And one of the guests on there put forward the case that all games are investigative. And I think to some degree yeah they are they're all investigative whether it's you know uh, like one that we're coming up to like jailbreak or, or whatever they're all investigative you're all sort of trying to find things out about other people you're trying to find out things about the location you're ex you know you're exploring that's kind of like investigation so they're all investigative to some degree um, but i think call of cthulhu stands apart in that hmm. there is the GM has definitely got something for you to go and investigate and there's a you know there's content that you're trying to find out about if you like. Mm -hmm. So next we've got web of intrigue. I was trying to find some way of, of describing what this is, but this is I think where particularly as a writer or as a GM, you visualize the scenario put it together in terms of the interactions between npcs rather than geography or uh, scenes and i think the classic example of this is crimson letters from the call of cthulhu seventh edition rulebook where it is very much presented as you know here are all the key npcs in this mystery 
and you as as the investigators going out and interviewing them obviously there is some detail that's given over to things like the locations that that they frequent but on the whole the focus of it in terms of the structure in terms of how the whole thing was put together is these connections between the npcs it feels almost in a way similar to the likes of a detective novel yeah because in a lot of those instances like the classic agatha christie model um, it's very much Praro or Marple going to different people, talking to them, and the location doesn't necessarily become the primary aspect of what's going on. It's very much the interaction and that discussion between characters. And then in finally going, oh, you said the one thing that contradicts something else, or that one key thing that you said gives the whole thing away, and that then brings you to the conclusion. Yeah, if you've got the Keeper rulebook, if you play Call of Cthulhu and you've got the Keeper rulebook and you've not read Crimson Letters then you're missing a trick so that that scenario is is fantastic and is so different to pretty much most other scenarios that i've yeah. that i've come across you know it's um yeah i mean alan did a great job with that i think it does embrace that kind of sandboxy approach as well this web of intrigue sandbox you know yeah it is it's just a sort of social sandbox but in terms of the structure as as a keeper or as a writer, if you're sitting down plotting all this out, going back to the the core of what this episode is about, that affects very much how you approach putting this together in the first place, that rather than seeing it as a series of important locations or a series of important events, you're seeing it as a, a series of important NPCs, their secrets and their connections to each other. And I think the key here is, as it says in the scenario, is that rather than going to uh, the library and doing a library use role and finding some information in a book and then going to the old house, you know, and taking up a floorboard and finding another clue, that's kind of stereotypical. In this scenario, in Crimson Letters, the clues are in the heads of these NPCs. Yeah, so rather than using locations, using NPCs, that almost automatically changes your structure, I think. Uh, or, or gives you other tools that you might not otherwise think mm -hmm. of doing. I think that's a really clever approach. Well, one thing that I've talked about multiple times in the podcast is how much I rely on relationship maps when I run games. Where you've got a scenario like Crimson Letters or anything that relies on a lot of NPCs, I do sort of see those relationship maps as being almost like dungeon maps, that they are providing these these connections, these logical connections between the important nodes, the important sources of information, the important aspects of the scenario. And it's just that these are social connections rather than, you know, 10 foot wide corridors. Well, I do like the idea of having a dungeon where effectively you go between rooms and there's just this one NPC stood in the middle of the room waiting with a big grin. You've come here to talk to me, have you? <laughs> and next on our page, we've got branching events. I'd say this is where you consider the scenario as a series of scenes. You're thinking of it in terms of the things that will happen. These are things that are triggered perhaps by the actions of the investigators. So they go and they talk to old Aunt Mildred and if they do the right things, they they learn about the secret cellar under the mansion and they can go down there. That will then tell them the secrets of the universe or whatever. But it's this mix and match approach of this clue leads to this clue that leads to this clue. You mentioned the idea of 
events triggered by the PCs. I think you've also got events that are triggered by the clock as well. So, you know, once it gets to midnight, this thing's going to happen. You know, once it gets to the 26th of June, this thing's going to happen. And irregardless of what the players have done, perhaps in some cases, or perhaps, you know, if the players do this thing, you know, there's a there's a interaction between the timeline and what the players do. I found that can be quite a difficult thing to run as well for some, uh, especially like as a new keeper or GM, that if you have a clock, you're suddenly thinking, well, hang on a minute, the PC's doing this. How long is that going to take? Mm. But I've got to judge this particular action to happen at this time, and then this one's going to happen in this place. And ah, and it suddenly becomes a, yeah. ha- handing like temporal mechanics into that kind of structure can be a bit daunting. Oh, it can, especially when it sort of says on day one this will happen, and on day two this will happen, and then on day three this will happen, mm-hmm. and your players just push through and do the whole thing in like three hours of actual game time because they don't stop to sleep, you know, they don't stop to eat, they just go headlong at everything. <laughs> So sometimes you have to play around with that order a little bit, I think. Though I think where you're talking about stuff that takes place over days, that is a lot easier to manage than this is going to happen at 10 o'clock, this is going to happen at 11 o'clock, this is going to happen at 12 o'clock. Because like you say, Hmm. you're not sitting there sort of thinking, right, it is now precisely 10 o'clock. But in terms of how you structure this, I guess this is another one where you're looking at a sort of web or network where, I mean, you talked before, Paul, about flowcharts. And I guess, you know, this is how you can flowchart it, that you break it down as a series of scenes. Probably more so than in something like a a dungeon where you could look at each room as being a scene. The scenes here are things that might or might not happen, or the actions of one scene might branch off and create two or three different possible scenes, depending on you know who Matt sets fire to in that scene. <laughs> so as a result, it needs to be a much more complex and dynamic structure. Mm. But in terms of the structure, it's still something that a novice GM perhaps can can follow and just sort of follow the flowchart. I think you pretty much described how Gumshoe lay out the scenarios, the scenarios across the Gumshoe line, that they all have a trail of clues flowchart diagram mm. in them that shows the possible routes through the yeah. scenario, but then has a spine which says this is kind of the optimal route, but you can you have various options of going off, as you say, branching paths that you can follow and ultimately bring you back onto the main path. And then we have a situation so this just gives you an opening situation and that's it. That's all it kind of gives you. But it gives you more than that, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is probably my favourite type of scenario. This is something that, for example, Hot War, which I've talked about before, when we were writing scenarios for that, this was very much the approach. You're not coming up with a series of events or you know, perhaps you're coming up with a few locations and important NPCs, but the important thing for the structure of the scenario is here is a problem that you are throwing at the player characters and it's up to the players to decide what to do with that. And then you perhaps might have a series of bangs, which you know, are more problems that you're throwing at the the player characters and that will then drive play Hmm. i think out of all the ones we've talked about so far this is probably the most difficult one for an inexperienced or or less confident gm to run but at the same time i think they're the most satisfying for me personally both as a player and particularly as a gm i think another aspect that is often 
added into these is, is uh, very strong character motivations. These are typically one-shots as well, I think. I don't know. I've, I've run entire campaigns like this. Okay. If you were presenting one of these at a convention then as a one-shot, you would give pre-generated characters with individual agendas and probably with some friction between those agendas. Yeah. Because what you want to do with this is to create drama at the table, don't you? And often that's not... Often the players aren't playing as a cohesive party as we often see in you know in your typical game if you like if you're doing this not as a convention game if you're doing this for your home group then you've got the freedom to much more easily have the players come up with their own agendas for the player characters their own motivations and then you as the gm have got the luxury of saying right okay let's look at all this let's look at how the agendas and the motivations of the player characters slot together and let's think of a situation that is going to hit all those intersections between those agendas hard and that is your scenario and you know most of the time that just really as i said comes down to having a strong opening scene that sets all that in motion and then every now and then coming up with these bangs that sort of says right yeah paul's character wants to try to save the old town library from destruction and matt wants to burn it to the ground let's find some way of getting them both into the library uh, along with a big jar of kerosene and see what happens this is pretty much the default method i found for writing any larp game and as well you set those agendas in place put the pcs in a as you say a particular situation with that opening scene and then just sit back and let them run riot mm. it's satisfying for the pcs in that respect they've got the, they've got a clear goal of they know what to do it's just they have to come up with an inventive way of doing it yeah. you know that it's going to conflict with other people and you as the gm have no idea what they're going to do so you're sit back and smile and wait for the sparks to fly really it's, there's there's a couple of instances in tabletop as well where you've got you meant we've mentioned jailbreak as being a classic because that's such that's such a good scenario I've, I've really enjoyed running that both as a tabletop and a larp uh, because it very much fits into that same style as well yeah and the the call of cthulhu example i think that does it pretty well is um it's an old one admittedly back from uh, issue 10 of unspeakable oath um in media res which i've run recently mm. and that has notes in it of how they ran it as a larp back in the day so yeah there's there's a lot of cross-pollination there between the two styles i mean i would say this is more than the others we've talked about this is more like a sandbox i would say yeah it's a different kind of sandbox i think before we were talking very much about geographical sandboxes but this is this is something i think more abstract and notional but yeah it, in terms of that complete freedom of play that this is yeah the one that offers the the biggest potential there i think it's probably also the most daunting for a new gm to run i don't think it's as scary as it seems at first because as matt pointed out in a lot of cases it's going to be the players and the player characters who are running around doing stuff. It's going to then be down to the GM to just sort of keep things ticking over and every now and then prod things to, to make stuff happen. But it's just a question, I suppose, of, of learning the confidence and learning the, the basic skills to make that happen because it's not something that you're necessarily going to be able to put down on paper ahead of time. But not just for the GM, I think. It can be for um, players as well. So I think your standard game where you're given a character and, you know, the, the other types of um, format we've talked about, most 
players are going to be able to sort of latch into that. Whereas the this very sort of sandboxy um, situational one, some players, even totally new players who've never played role-playing games, are going to latch straight into that and love it. And I think some of the players are perhaps going to struggle with that a bit more. It's more... Proactive. Yeah, definitely requires people to be more proactive. Yeah, and if they do, then it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, then we're on to hybrids. So, you know, we're talking about just... And everything is kind of a hybrid, really, isn't it? It's very rare that you get one of a scenario which totally defines one of the things we've talked about, one of the, the structures we've talked about to the exclusion of all the others. Yeah. So maybe here we should just use this this last bit of the show just to talk about some of the scenarios we've, we've written or we've played and how they kind of exemplify different structures that or, or the kind of structures that we think we typically utilize in our own scenarios that we tend to favor mm. what would be the typical sanderson scenario structure is there a typical structure or maybe even you're blind to it matt i don't know it's not really something i've considered on a primary level mm. uh, the main thing for me these days is i want to write a scenario that is replayable and has lots of different ways it can go because i don't want to sit down at a table and run the same scenario that goes a b c d that oh yeah they will play pc is going to do this then they're going to do this then they're going to do this and it happens the same every time because that's dull mm. it might be all right for the first two or three times but after that you kind of think oh, i'm done with it now i'm going to need a new scenario i want something that's got that breadth and creativity where people could do anything and it keeps me as a gm on my toes and that that's the key concern for me these days you can almost have any of those structures incorporate that you just have to craft them in a particular way mm. but i guess i draw bits and pieces from a couple of over of these overarching terms that we've used Branching events I'm quite in favour of because there's that option that, yeah, I mean, the PCs could take this route through a scenario, but they could take this route. Looking at that tree diagram, they may take the route on the left this time, they may take the route on the right another time. I quite equally like a fairly open dungeon as well, where it's they can react and do different things in different rooms. It's not a case of, oh, right, you go kick in the door, now you're going to have the obligatory fight with the ogre. It's they, they can pick and choose what bits do they find in that room to to do and that may lead them in a completely different direction mm. they may make wrong assumptions okay it's just that it's how you perceive that structure working and what flexibility you can put in there that is ultimately the main thing for me and what about you scott or oh, do you have a typical structure or do you think about structure when you start writing it i definitely think about structure but I tend to vary, I think, though I, I think I fall back on two main types, at least initially during the development process. One is very much the situation. Even when I'm writing an investigative scenario or developing an investigative scenario, I tend to approach them in terms of situations and bangs. And then when it comes to, for example, for Call of Cthulhu, writing it up, I then go back and retroactively look at what the players have done typically in all my playtests and then provide a more defined structure to another keeper 
so that they can provide a similar kind of experience as my players had at the table. Mm. But that's not necessarily how I started off thinking about it. I, I started off thinking about it in terms of, here's a problem, let's see what they do. And if after five play tests, there are some fairly common things that, that the player characters do, then that, that's the support that I put into the scenario. The other approach I take is very much a, a geographical one, whether that's a, a geographical sandbox or a dungeon or whatever, thinking about it in terms of a series of locations and things that happen there. And I've written a fair number of scenarios like that, you know, including for Call of Cthulhu and Pop Cthulhu, because, again, it provides a really simple and direct structure that I can then pass on to another GM. Hmm. How about you, Paul? It depends if we're talking about one shots or campaigns. So a one shot is going to have a it's got to have a start, it's got to have a middle, it's got to have an end. Mm, yeah. Um, when you play it, right? I mean, whether you script those things or, or they're improvised, they've still got to be a start, middle, and an end. Yeah. Um, and I think with a one shot, yeah, I always start with an opening scene. I always define that. I mean, not all scenarios have to define their opening scene. You can you you can just sort of say, oh, where are you going to be? You know, when you get this phone call. But it's still an instigating event. I mean, that phone call is still effectively the opening scene, even if they're taking it in different places. It still needs something to, to set things in motion. Yeah, it's kind of kicking things off. So I would I would usually start with a try and make some sort of opening scene. That can be dramatic. It can just be gentle. And then I think that the kind of branching options um, of different scenes and different places they might go through it. And there's probably going to be some set events that occur. And then I've probably got a few endings or variations of endings in mind that, you know, they might sort of head towards because that's sort of how I see a one shot happening. If it's a longer campaign, then I think you've got you've got the start, but your end might not be for like six months or a year. It's important then to give thought to the structure mm of not necessarily your game every evening because you can't necessarily run every evening or every uh, session of a campaign like you would run, run a one-shot. Sometimes you just get to a point and it's you look at the clock and you're like, we need to wrap up in a bit. Okay, well, let's just leave it. Should we just leave it here when you're just sort of heading off on the boat? And everybody's like, yeah, let's just leave it there for tonight. And it's just, you know, it's just a, it's just a kind of a break you know um but i think if yeah. you are running a campaign you still need to try and build in some ends you know some dramatic yeah. sort of mini climaxes that sort of um that sort of gives the thing structure otherwise i think you can end up wallowing a bit in the you know there's this long baggy middle where it, it can feel a bit ponderous yeah and i would also say that i don't really think about structure when i start writing a scenario I don't give any thought to, is it going to be a sandbox? Is it going to be a linear scenario? Is it going to be a branching? I don't give any thought to that whatsoever. I just, just write the scenario and it just kind of evolves. And I think it, I mean, it sounds like you do the same, Matt. You, you sort of said you don't give thought to structure initially. Like I say, it's more what the GM's going to get out of it and also the story, but then structure as comes out of that as a result. Hmm. But yeah, it's definitely not the primary aspect. That's interesting because I never... Well, I don't think I ever think of scenarios in terms of stories. I think of them in terms of problems. I think of them in terms of the, the sort of space in which a story might happen. But I don't think of them as stories. I think stories are very different things. It might be what we the way we're using the word story. We might be confusing our terms. I don't know. 
Just to wrap things up, are there any particular scenarios that we've come across where the structure has particularly impressed us or that has struck us as unusual or notable in any way? Yeah, I've got a few that I can think of from from over the years, which admittedly, the first one, when I first encountered it, I thought, wow, this is completely off the wall. How the hell will this work? But then has actually more become closer to my normal default style over the years. <laughs> That's... Um, Pinfeathers from the second edition Unknown Armies core book, because mm. that's presented very much as here's a load of NPCs, here's a whole load of locations, and the GM can, to some extent, a bit like with Crimson Letters, really, they can select how those NPCs fit into the story, what their motivations are, so there can be a bit of customization here and there. When I remember first looking, I thought, how the hell can anyone run this? There's there's not enough guidance here, there's not enough, and to use that word again, structure, to really make it easy for a GM to run it. It's almost like you're writing your own thing, but uh, doing a kind of dot-to-dot, connect-the-dots-line puzzle thing. But yeah, that's, that that struck me as being very, very odd when we first played it. I mean, it's it's also something that we found when we were playing such games, that there's there's instances where that it can work really well, but it can also crash and burn really easy as well. Like another UA scenario that I remember we sadly had to put aside because we just couldn't work out how the hell to work our way through it was the green glass grail oh yeah yeah um, in the in the wheat book having looked back at it since we tried to play it is oh this is quite good but yeah we just we floundered our way through it and ultimately went we we don't know how to proceed it's just so open and so again that lack of direction and structure really was a problem for us as players well, I think there is that thing where the first time you encounter a new type of structure, a new way of uh, scenario being conveyed, it is quite shocking. I, I remember having this experience the first time I saw a Call of Cthulhu scenario in White Dwarf back in the early 80s, mm. where I'd played D&D before then, and I'd seen D&D scenarios, and that suddenly there was, I can't remember which one it was, I, I want to say that it was The Horse and the Invisible, Marcus Rowland's adaptation of the Karnaki story, but it may have been a different one. But whichever one it was, I, I was looking through this in the school library and thinking, okay, it's a scenario, but where's the dungeon? <laughs> I was looking for a map. I was looking for a series of labeled locations, and there wasn't one. I was looking at this thinking, well, how the hell do you run it? Because it was so outside my experience. Yeah, I mean, I think more recently, the one where I had that exact reaction of, what, what the hell? Uh, got a reaction to it. It's in the uh, the latest collection for Cult Divinity Lost, the Screams and Whispers collection, and the scenario called Hell is Other People by Anders Vega. By God, that thing's weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially, and no, no real spoilers here, three people in a car with a driver at the front and a whole load of questions the GM just throws at the players and then sees what they respond with. Hmm. There's a couple of other uh, maybe very small bangs that you throw in. But, yeah, and a good 95% of that scenario is talking and pushing PC's buttons and really pushing them hard. Hmm. And seeing the drama that unfolds. I really want to run that because it looks pretty damn good. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash good friends of Jackson Elias. Thank you for listening.
Well, according to the structure that we got laid out for this episode, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to, well, for a start, you for listening to the podcast, to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon, and to a few new backers who we are going to thank by name. Yep, thanks to Laurie Kudstahl. Who has been very active on our Discord server recently. And also thanks to Zion J. And hopefully I've got the Zion bit right. And thank you very much to Daniel Monks. And thanks to Sleet. And also thanks go out to... Anyways, this is maybe Dodo-Do or Do-Do-Do. But yeah, we'll, we'll go with Do-Do-Do. And thank you very much to Ben Hartley. And thanks to Michael. And thank you very much to Zachary Edgerton. And thank you to Matt L. And thanks to Nathan Decker. And thank you to Juan Antonio Casas. Again, hopefully I've got the pronunciation right there. And thank you to Togsy. And thanks to Sophie Lee. And thank you very much to Michael Mihalish. Again, hopefully I've pronounced that one right. And thank you very much to Ulf Bengtsson. And thank you to Romulan Rena. Ah, yes. <laughs> thank you, Rena, who I've played a lot of games with on How We Roll and Ain't Slayed Nobody. Ah, uh, definitely a name I recognise here as well. Thank you very much to Sue Savage. Who's also one of the moderators on our Discord server. So, yeah, thank you, Sue. Okay, well, that brings us to uh, our final scene of the structure of our show. I feel like I've been railroaded here. This, this isn't where my character was supposed to end up, Paul. Well, it's where you are, Scott. Oh, Dan. We should occasionally blow apart some of the walls in this dungeon and uh, kind of have the new section at the end and do our introduction right before we stop recording. Don't make the GM angry. <laughs> okay, well, let's wrap it up there. It's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com <laughs> and horror gaming in general.